we're talking about Easter. <clears throat> this is uh, just an incredible day in the history of the world. Uh, Easter is a time of hope. We all, we all need hope. I mean, nobody, nobody would, I think, would disagree with that. This is a, we're in a time, uh, an incredible time in, in, in the history of the world, this pandemic and, and our culture and everything that's going on, so many things in the past year. Uh, it's been hard, and there have been challenges, and, and uh, we, we look forward to when, you know, we talk about this, when things would get back to normal, and yet what will normal be, and will they ever get back to normal as we knew it? It just is a, it's kind of a scary thing that we're, we're dealing with in this time. But oftentimes, times like this, they make us stop and think, what am I really counting on? What am I, am I building my life on a foundation that's solid enough for the circumstances that I cannot control? Right? Am I building my life on a foundation that will hold when things go totally out of control? And that's one of the reasons why I've been actually been looking forward to speaking this morning is because we gather to remember this morning the only hope that is capable of sustaining human life through anything and everything. People have not gathered for the past 2,000 years and said, the stock market is risen, it is risen indeed. They haven't done that. They've not gathered to say the dollar has risen. They have not gathered to say, oh, the unemployment rate is lower. They have not gathered to say the, the gross domestic product has risen. They have not gathered to say my 401k has risen. They have not gathered for that reason. Because there's only one hope. There's a hope that has been the hope for millions and millions of people on every continent, in every culture, for over 2,000 years to help people in the face of poverty, disease, pain, hardship, and death. And that is Christ is risen. That is the hope that people have found that will make that kind of a difference. And oftentimes people re respond you know, they say Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. This is a tradition that's gone on since, since the very beginning. We'll even look. There's a passage that it, that it was taken from. And that word indeed means in truth or in fact. It's an old English word that means it happened. And, and it was a while back, I was watching, uh, seeing a blog, uh, watching a post there, and a guy was, they were talking. A couple guys were talking, and it got on to Easter and religious things. And, this, and one guy was saying, I, I, th I think it's, 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 it's not a physical resurrection. It's, it's kind of a metaphor. And he kind of was saying that uh, here's what happened. You know, the disciples are sitting around, and, and Jesus has died, and they miss him. But yet he still seems alive to them, you know, because it's so recent. And he made such an impact on their life. And so they started to believe that in some sense he's alive, and it evolved into this metaphor of the resurrection, and the idea basically says, look, we understand that when you die, you die, and that's it. But the, this, this is a metaphor of the human spirit or of human optimism. That was one of the things he talked about, but it didn't, didn't really physically, literally happen. It's, it's just a metaphor. And, you know, of course, the, the problem is that something happened 2,000 years ago that galvanized a group of people. And, and they didn't gather. They, they were not transformed by the idea of a metaphor they did not form the world's first community. I'm reading a book uh, by a historian that talks about uh, certain things that, that, that uniquely the Christianity has impacted the world with. And, and he talks about that, that first century church. They formed a community that, that included Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, rich and poor. They broke down every ethnic 
barrier, every cultural barrier, racial barrier, sexual barrier. They broke down all those barriers and allowed people to congregate. In fact, we have, we have I mentioned this before, um, a record of, of a church where a slave is the pastor and his owner came to that church. How could that happen? How could that happen? And this first century church did things that were incredible, that were unbelievable. And they didn't do them because of a metaphorical resurrection. They didn't sacrifice their land, their property, their possessions, their reputation, their vocations, their positions based on a symbol, on a metaphor. They didn't go to their death by the thousands believing they would be resurrected metaphorically. They believed it because Christ has risen. He has risen indeed. It happened. Listen, they all understood death. They knew. They know what death looks like. They know dead people don't come back to life. They know that. And yet he did. And they believed it. They saw it. And, and it's, he started appearing to people. Less than 20 years, or about 20 years or so after, after Christ had died, Paul wrote this. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom were still living. Paul, basically, what is he saying? Paul's saying, look, there are people alive who remember. You can talk to them. You can check. Now, you don't write something like that unless you're sure those people are going to back you up. Mark, probably the first book, probably significantly less than 20 years after Christ died. Mark wrote, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. So what happened? Jesus has just been beat. He's been flogged. He's carrying his cross. This is the part of the, the traditional way the Romans punished people. They humiliated them in front of the whole city by making them carry their own cross that they were going to die. You know, it would be like if they were going to behead somebody, they'd make them carry the sword as they walked walk through the city. And Jesus, because of, he just couldn't carry it. And so they, which the Romans would do at times, they just grabbed somebody out of the crowd. And so they grabbed this man, Simon, who evidently was a businessman from out of town. And he's just like, hey, I'm just conducting business. I have nothing, I have nothing to do with this. I got no dog in this fight. I don't know what you guys are doing here. I don't know what's going on. Just let me do, conduct my business. And he said, no, you carry his cross. So he carried his cross. And in church tradition, Simon became a Christian through this. And I believe that's true. Because what's happening here is James, uh, it, what's happening here is that Mark is saying, look, Simon carried his cross. He's got two sons, Alexander and Rufus. Why did he mention their sons? Because they're alive when he wrote it. He's saying, you can ask them. You can ask them. His sons are still alive. Check it out. See, you don't write that unless you're pretty sure that Alexander and Rufus are going to say, yeah, that's what happened. Otherwise, the whole thing's blown. They were alive. They were known to the audience that Mark was writing to. If you have questions, ask them. See, you don't write this. You don't say that if, you, if you're writing a myth. You don't say that if you're talking about a symbol. This is a totally different genre. It's a different kind of literature. Jesus meets two of his disciples right after the resurrection, and they, t and they talk with him, and they say how his words were burning in their heart, and they ran back to the, to the other, other disciples, and they say, it is true, the Lord has risen. Now, it is true, in English, literally is the word indeed. 
This is where we get he is risen. He is risen indeed. This is where we get it from because that's what that word means. And it's where a church greeting that has been going on for 2,000 years. Saying it's true. It's happened. It's not a metaphor. It's not a vague hope. It's not a saccharine illusion that we tell to comfort children when they've lost their pet. It's not something we say just because it's a sick person who's on death's door and we don't want to we want to encourage them. It's not that. There's only one explanation that accounts for the overnight transformation of a group of people who were impoverished and confused and frightened and scared. And suddenly they became within days courageous and emboldened who would sacrifice anything, even their lives. And they turned the world upside down. Jesus was their master. He was their teacher. They watched him. They saw him die on the cross. They saw it. They knew his body was put in a tomb. And he had told them, this is what will happen. He was, he was who he claimed he was, and he rose. And it really happened, they said. Now, there's a lot we could talk about to talk about the historicity of the resurrection, the, the, the Easter story. But, but I want to I also move into another area, actually, that I think is even more important. What does it mean, then? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to you when we say these things? The resurrection means that your worth does not fluctuate. People worry about their finances a lot because they think finance is the key to their future, their retirement, their well-being. And, they, and I'm telling you, they're trusting the wrong thing. You are worth, you are worth to God today what you were worth to him 10 years ago, which, what you were worth to him however many years, the first day you were born, you were worth his son. And you're still worth that. It's not going to change. It's not going to fluctuate. You know, I was thinking about this this week. I'm imagining the days after Easter. Maybe the disciples, James and John, are talking, you know. And uh, John says to James, he's risen. The Lord is risen indeed. But man, my fishing business has dropped off by 40%. I feel like such a failure. I'm not sleeping well. I'm anxious. I don't know when things will turn around. It may be years before the fish ever start biting like they were in the past. What do you think James would say to that? I think James would say, are you crazy? He has risen indeed, and you're standing here telling me you can't sleep over how many fish that you haven't caught? i got to tell you the truth. If he has risen indeed, then who cares about the fish? They're only fish. It's only money. It pales in comparison to the implications of the fact that he has risen. He has risen indeed means nothing else defines your identity, your job, your vocation, your title, your position, your family, your health. How things are going up or down does not have any say in your worth. Peter describes it this way in 1 Peter 1, 18, 19, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. It is not through things that just pass away from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He says something eternal happened, not something of this world. Something supernatural has happened. You may have been worrying about money and stocks and IRAs and the price of gas, but you walk out of here today, you can think, no, no, those things don't determine what I'm worth. What does determine what I'm worth? What God thinks of me, this God who says, you're worth more than every dollar, drachma, euro, peso, ruby, ruble, 
pound, mark, or yen ever printed, ever coined. You're worth more than it because you're worth my son. You're worth the life of my son. So the resurrection means your worth does not fluctuate. The resurrection also means your future is not at risk. No, no matter what happens, your future is not up for grabs. One of my favorite characters, I love history. One of my favorite characters is Winston Churchill. Um, uh, just this incredibly strong man who guided England through, you know, the darkest days maybe that empire has ever seen and, uh, and just did it with uh, such fortitude and even at times grace and, and at times not so graceful, but that was, I think, what was required. His, mottos was in, his motto was, in war resolution, in defeat, defiance. He said, even if they beat us, we'll never give up. He, uh, he gave a commencement address at, at uh, Cambridge University not long after the end of World War II. And he probably gave the shortest address that commencement, has ever, uh, commencement speech that Cambridge has ever heard. He got up and he just said, never give up, never give up, never give up. And he walked away. And they're thinking, we gave him money for that? <laughs> you know, we could have got anybody to say that, right? Uh, and, but he was that way. He was just this pugnacious, strong fighter. Um, he had a running feud with a, a woman named Lady Astor, who was a very powerful woman in English society in those days. And one time at a, at a party, she walked up to him and she said, in front of all these people too, so it was, she was really trying to shame him. She said, Mr. Churchill, if you were my husband, I'd poison your tea. And he said, Lady Astor, if I was your husband, I'd drink it gladly. He just was that kind of guy. That's what I like about it. That's what I, I like some of that stuff about him, the stories about Winston Churchill. But I think one of the coolest stories is, as he got older, he planned his own funeral. He planned it out to the T. And at the end of it, after every word had been spoken, after the benediction had been pronounced, and before the people left, Churchill had, a, uh, he had, had once a, a, a bugler up in St. Paul's Cathedral, up on the highest part of St. Paul's Cathedral, and he played taps the universal signal that the day is done, the night has come. It just seemed a very fitting way as his funeral ended. And everybody sat there when the last note kind of echoed in this great cathedral, and they were silent, and they were thinking about Winston Churchill, this great man, and what he meant to the, to the, to the nation of, of England, and what he had done, and, and just thinking about that. And all of a sudden, at the other end of the cathedral, up high, a, a bugler, another bugler started playing. And he played Reveille. He played the, the, it's time to get up, the song of a new day. Why did he do that? Why did Churchill plan that? And I don't know Winston Churchill's heart. But I think he did it because there was a man who said 2,000 years ago, I am the resurrection and the life. And it doesn't end here. It's a new day. Will your future have problems? Of course it will have problems. Is there a good chance you will die eventually? Yes, you can bet on it. Does that make Jesus nervous? No, not at all. Why? Because he's already died. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. He's already done it. He's already been there. He's already been through it. And he says, I know the way out. I formed it. I made it for you. 
He took the, the worst that death could do, and he is risen. And he said, I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. So that means your future is not at risk. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your future is secure. The resurrection means your worth does not fluctuate. The resurrection means your future is not at risk. The resurrection means your past is not unforgivable. Okay, so these things are set. So your past doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter what you've been involved in. It is, it is not unforgivable. It doesn't matter what you think gives you worth in this life or what you think takes away worth in this life. It's not unforgivable. I was thinking about that when I was thinking about things that we think are worthy or bring worth into our life. Years ago, um, our hot water heater broke, and uh, it just stopped making hot water. And uh, I'm not in any way uh, or in shape a, a plumber, and I didn't know what to do. And I was thinking, oh, man, this giant thing full of water, I'm going to have to drain it somehow. I'm going to get somebody to replace it, figure out I don't even know what I'm doing. And uh, then I realized I have a brother-in-law who is a plumber, and so I called him. And I said, look, here's what's going on, man. Help me, Obi-Wan. You know, you're my only hope. And uh, he says, Bob, Bob, listen, I, I don't think you need to replace it. I don't think it needs to be. You, I think it's just your, your heating elements. There's two elements that screw into the side of it. And uh, you replace those and your hot water heater will be fine. And I was like, oh, man, that's awesome. I said, oh, man, that thing's got like 50 gallons of water in it. And I got to drain that some, somehow because they always stick hot water heaters in the middle of your house. So if it floods, it'll do the most damage. I don't know why that is. But anyways, he said, no, no, you don't even have to drain it. There's a little trick and I'll walk you through it. And I was like, really? He goes, okay, go get the two elements. Here's what you're looking for. Get these tools. Here's what you're looking for. Now my wife, who always is in my corner when it comes to things like this, said, Bob, do you really think you should do this? I mean, you know, you and tools, <laughs> remember the chainsaw, right? Yeah. Do you think this is a good idea? So then it became a crusade, right? You know how that works. Because then it's like, oh, not only do I think I can do it, I don't even think I need the help anymore. I think I'm not even going to call him back and ask him. But I did. And he walked me through it. He walked me through how to change your heating elements without even, without even taking the water out of the tank. It was amazing. I changed those heating elements. I got them done. I was like, yes, I am a plumber. You know, fear me. You know, all you faucets. And I, and I thought, I'm somebody. Because I wanted to be somebody. I want to be somebody. I want to be good with tools. I want to fix my own car. I don't, and I can't. And so when things break down, we find ways of fixing them. But what do you do when your life breaks down? What do you do when a marriage falls apart? What do you do when you mess up as a parent and maybe damage a child in significant ways? What do you do when you violate your values that you say you hold dear? What do you do when you ha handle anger poorly and maybe do things that embarrass or hurt people around you that you love? What do you do when you get trapped in deceit? What do you do when you start to get greedy and actually can destroy things around you? What do you do when you get hooked on an addiction that ends in humiliation? What do you do when you're afraid to say something or do something that you know needs to be said or needs to be done and you don't, you just can't get up the courage to do it and you're ashamed of yourself? 
What do you do with that? Who do you call? Not Ghostbusters. That's a bad. Okay, you call Jesus. You call Jesus. Why? Because he can be there for everything. He has that because he's God. In Romans 5, 6 through 8, it says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will someone will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, we talk sometimes about the, the Greek, the way the Greeks thought about time. And, and two, two words that they used a lot for time. One is chronos, which we get chronometer from, and it's the idea of time that tick, tick, tick follows a linear fashion. Tick, 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 day, 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 week, 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 month, 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 year, year, year. Just your life is a long chronos. And then there's the word kairos, and kairos means there are certain points in this chronos that are incredibly important, that are full of purpose, full of meaning, full of possibility. And a kairos moment is a special moment in time. Your life is made of billions and trillions, however many, you know, you get the idea, trillions and trillions of moments of time. But there, in the middle of your life, there are times when it's a kairos moment. And God says here in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, he says, there was a kairos moment in the history of the world. You see, just at the right kairos, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And in verse 8, he says, God demonstrates. What does that word mean? That word means he lived it for us. He lived it out. Like if, if you say to someone, I want you to do this. Here, I'll demonstrate it. What do you do? You do it for them one time so that they can imitate what you're doing. You model it. You live it out for them. So God says, I'm going to show you how much I love you. I'm going to just live it out in a very personal way. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were against him, Christ died. Knowing we were against him, Christ died. In the middle of the insults and the whipping and the pain and the hate and the spit and every humiliation that was placed, Christ died for us. Nothing you have ever done is beyond God's ability to cleanse and forgive because Christ, who died on the cross, is risen indeed. And we all need to hear this. Because the resurrection means that for all of us, the best is yet to come. Wherever you've traveled, wherever you've been, however old you are, whatever you've done, the best is yet to come. This is the the promise of the resurrection. And so the resurrection means your worth does not fluctuate. The resurrection means your future is not at risk. The resurrection means your past is not unforgivable. The resurrection means shalom. Now, shalom is a word, a Hebrew word, that in in our Bibles is always translated peace, but it means so much more than peace. Peace doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what it means. It's this idea of reconciliation and wholeness, you know, peace with God, that type of reconciliation, this kind of wholeness in our lives, a flourishing. One definition talks about a flourishing physically, emotionally, socially, and spiritually, a flourishing that only God can bring about. That is shalom. Shalom has been reduced now in many places like in Israel and other places to just a greeting or almost like saying, see you later. You know, shalom, shalom. 
but it means this idea of a reconciliation that brings about a flourishing so that a person does, becomes what they were made to be in every aspect of their life. That's what God wants for us. The resurrection means shalom. In Ephesians uh, chapter 2, Paul writes, and in verses 1 through 10 is almost, almost a definition of the word and the meaning of shalom. Um, just, to, just to sum it up real quick, in chapter 2, 1 through 10, first thing he tells him, he says, you're dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You were deceived. You only lived life for yourself. It was all about me. That's the kind of person you were. And then he puts in that, that great, but God, but God. Wherever you see that in the Bible, you know there's a huge point coming. But God, he loved you so much, he made you alive with his mercy and his grace. We just talked about mercy, not getting what I deserve. Grace, getting what I don't deserve. These two like towers of, of incredible, the love of God. He made you alive because of the resurrection. He's going to show you. He's going to shower you with this grace forever. In verses 8 and 9, I'll just quote him. He says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one should boast. And then he tells them, You are this masterpiece that God is creating. Why? Because he's creating this masterpiece to go and bless people. He says, I'm making you this masterpiece, and I have arranged for these things for you to do in the course of your life that will impact people all over. And see, this is shalom. You started dead. You received life. And now you will flourish. You will become what you were made to be. Not something our culture tells you you should be. But what God says, I made you to be this. This is for you. Shalom is an incredible idea, a principle, a process that happens in our lives. Um, I was reading a book. Jose and I have been reading a book, um, and I came across a story to me that encapsulates what shalom is. In the late 1600s, early 1700s, there was a group of people who immigrated from England and moved to Martha's Vineyard the island there off the Massachusetts coast. Martha's Vineyard was basically ignored at that. Nobody knew what that land would be worth, you know, in the long run. They moved there. They were from a place called the Weald, W-E-A-L-D. I don't know what I'm spelling for you. The Weald in England, which had, interestingly, a high incidence of hereditary deafness. They immigrated to the U.S., and most of them settled on Martha's Vineyard, which is an island. And so there's a significant amount of interbreeding that happens so that the incidences of hereditary deafness skyrocket. They estimated, and I don't know who did this estimate, but I just, I just read it in a history book, that in the United States of America in the, in the, in the 1700s, deaf people was about one to every 5,000 hearing. On that island, it was way less. In one town called Chilman, uh, 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 Chilweed, I think is what, Chilmark, it was one in 25. In one little town, it was one in four people were deaf. So you had this huge group of deaf people. And so a study was done because this was, because it was an isolated area, you know, for a sociological study and, and, and studies on these type of things. This is like prime. And so they started interviewing in, in the mid-1900s. They started interviewing people who who uh, had been there during those times, you know, in the, in the early 1900s. Around 1940, 
everybody started moving away and people started moving in and it all started ending. So they, they were interviewing people because they thought this is a point in history that's important for us to capture. So they were talking to one lady and she operated a little, a little shop, a little business. And they said to her, man, I mean, that many, you must have seen a deaf person at least every day at, at your job. Oh yeah, of course. You know, I'd, I'd get 20 people a day and two, maybe three, four would be deaf. And they said, well, that means there was a lot of writing going on, right? They would write, you would write, what do you want? They would write, and you'd go back and forth, back and forth. And she said, oh, no. I spoke sign language. And they were like, you spoke sign language? Yes. Everyone on the island spoke sign language. And they were like, what? And they said, well, why should we... Treat them differently. They said, well, you know, people were beginning in the late 1700s, early 1800s to learn how to read lips. And she said, well, why should we make them adapt to us? Why don't we just adapt to them? And it was a stunning thing. They started investigating this, and it found out everyone learned how to speak sign language on the, on the island of Martha's Vineyard for 250 years. One woman they interviewed who had married a guy from there. So she moved there. She said, the day after we moved in, somebody showed up and said, I'm your tutor. For what? For sign language. And it was the most interesting thing. And so in most societies, the disabled are forced to adapt to what the abled can do. They're forced to adapt so that with people who are deaf, they teach them, learn how to read lips so you can assimilate into our society. Here, we had a society that did it in reverse. And they found out, interestingly, there were a lot of pluses to everybody knowing sign language. They found out that parents maybe needed to discuss something about their child, and their child's in the next room and could be listening. So they signed it. They found out, and I don't recommend this, they found out, that in church, if people wanted to talk, but the pastor was speaking, they'd sign. Wouldn't interrupt anybody. They found all kinds of ways. They had an instance one time where a, a, a fishing boat was leaving, and it was before they had radios. A fishing boat was leaving, and one of the men on the boat, his wife, had just gotten sick. And somebody went out to a high point and, and waved, and they noticed him. And so they, they started looking, and he signed, come back, your wife is sick. And the boat turned around and came back. And they were saying, we found all sorts of ways where this helped us. But the interesting thing is, the, uh, the historian that was writing one of the papers said, a whole society of people decided to disadvantage themselves for the sake of the minority. That's the principle of shalom. The strong disadvantages itself for the weak. The majority disadvantages itself for the minority. The powerful disadvantage themselves for the powerless. The rich disadvantage themselves for the poor. You see, this is the principle that Jesus laid down when he came to earth. I mean, you think about it. He was rich and he became poor for our sake. He was strong. He became weak for our sake. He was powerful. He became powerless for our sake. Why did he do that? To bring shalom into our lives and into this world. And then what does he say? Go and do likewise. He wants us to do something radical. He wants us to do something that goes against what the world says we should do. 
If you don't look out for yourself, who's going to look out for you? That's what the world tells us. You need to get everything, just get what you can to ensure yourself, to ensure your future, your family, all these things. And these aren't necessarily bad things, but occasionally God says, you know what? I want you to disadvantage yourself for the sake of the powerless, for the sake of the minority, for the sake of the poor, for the sake of those less fortunate. I want you to unfortunate yourself. And this is what Christians do. This is what Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. This is what changes people. What happened in the early church? They said, behold how they love one another. This is incredible what these people are doing. They love each other this much? Why? Because they believed we were all part of the family of God. Even up to the very end, they did that. And so in our day, God calls us to be these kind of people, to be different. He tells us that the resurrection means your worth does not fluctuate. You're worth everything to God. The resurrection means your future is not at risk. The resurrection means your past is not unforgivable. And the resurrection means shalom. God wants to bring shalom into your life. He wants you to find purpose and meaning, and he wants you to live out the kind of life you were made to live out. Not a life that someone else has crafted for you. Not a life that the culture or culture tells you you should have. A life that God wants for you. It's a totally different thing. You know, it's funny, in our day, we talk about everything, right? Our culture, we can talk about everything. How many times you go, oh, TMI, dude, come on. You're talking about, girl, don't, I don't want to hear that. You, right? We, we talk about everything, except for one thing, interestingly, death. We don't like to talk about death. That's not your fun conversation, right? You get together with some friends, you're all hanging out. Hey, let's talk about death for a little bit. That sounds cool. No, no one does that. We don't like to say the name. We have a game called life. We don't have a game called death because it wouldn't sell, right? We have a cereal called life. We don't have a cereal called death. For those who wake up slow, I don't know, maybe that would be the thing it would be good for. We have a product we call life insurance. And what do you have to do to collect it? Die. But we don't call it, we don't call it death insurance, right? You walk into some insurance agency and say, let me talk to you about death insurance. I'll be like, let me get out of your office. Because, okay, life insurance, I'm in. Right? We don't like to talk about it because we don't know how to handle death. Funerals are the most awkward times. You don't know what to say. How do we talk about that? Jesus has no problem talking about it. Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives by believing in me, by coming to me, by following me, by trusting me, by putting themselves in my hands, death is powerless over you because I've been there. I beat it. And that's what the resurrection can mean to every single one of us. God has a plan for us to be resurrected. How do we get that plan? How do we get in on that? Well, one is be perfect. God is perfect. Life with God will forever be perfect. There'll be no more violence, no more injustice, no more unspeakable things happening, no more greed, no more deceit, no more arrogance, no more deception. It'll be filled with perfect people. So one way is to be perfect. So how's that working out? No, not for me, not for me. Not so well. But luckily, there's another plan. It's called the grace plan. I can't live a perfect life. 
I can't, but Jesus already did. He lived that perfect life, and he was in a position so that he went to the cross. He paid my debt on the cross. He, you know, he, 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 um, he brought to us, through his death and resurrection, a love that transcends everything. I've never seen a love like this before. We've seen that. We sing that, and that's what he brought to us. When we commit ourselves to him, when a person says, I'm, Jesus, you are my savior. I'm trusting you to be my savior. I'm going to follow you. I want to change because I know I'm a sinner. I need you. When a person does that, then Easter is not Easter on the calendar anymore. It's Easter for you. It's a, it's a resurrection. It's when we finally make that decision, and ultimately it changes everything. It starts a process that changes everything so that we can live life the way we were meant to live it. That's what he wants for us. So for each one of us here, and for myself included, as we leave this place, the resurrection means your worth does not fluctuate. You don't have to worry about that. The resurrection means your future is not at risk. You don't have to worry about that. The resurrection means your past is not unforgivable. And the resurrection means now shalom is possible in your life. You can live the life you were made to live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Father, for what you did through your son, Jesus Christ, why we celebrate today. There are a lot of fun things that go on in a day like this. Easter egg hunts and children and just it's an enjoyable time. And you've given us a beautiful day, Lord, but help us not to let that distract us from the bigger picture. That now, because of what happened 2,000 years ago, life is not the same anymore. We have been set free to live life in a way that we could never live before. God, help us to experience that. Help us to come to uh, get a taste of it and want it more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.